and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews, and previews. Buy their books, watch their movies, read their articles. I am Tom Shapira, and with me, my amazing and regular co-host... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, and I've played this fight in my head a million times from every angle. Midnighter? Midnighter. Just to point out that on Sequart, Max Nesterwich is currently doing an analysis of Hellblazer called Sitting Through the Ashes. Also remember that Sequart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism comics. Shall we start with the news? Yes. I would like to start on a positive note after my Hickman meltdown last episode. And talk about a bit of news that made my week, my month, my year. Brian Bendis is leaving X-Men. Six Semper Tyrannis. You were waiting. Out damned spot. Our long national nightmare is over. Well, well, wait, wait. Now, we're both not a big Bandy's fan. When it comes to his superhero writings, group superhero writings, we enjoyed the Ultimate Spider-Man at this time. To a point. To a point. Well, after more than ten years, you know, everything starts to get a bit boring. That's true. Yeah, you know, he could only keep it long... Yeah, and I'll, I'll give him the credit that's due. Alias was great. Daredevil was great. X-Men, not great. I haven't been this happy about a creator getting tossed off X-Men since Chuck Austin. Not since... Uh... He... <laughs> I, I can't help feeling like he played a very large part in driving this franchise into the ground. with The X-Men from the past and the X-Men from the future. And Xavier being married to Mystique and Kitty Pryde treating older Scott with younger Gene like he did a pedophile... All of that wrong, 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 wrongness is finally done because I want to love the X-Men again. Okay, I but do. but Bandit's living brings us two questions. One, where is he going? Where is he going? Because <laughs> he was writing the X-Men, which was Marvel's biggest franchise at the time, mm-hmm. and then he was writing the X-Men. So what's next? Because it's not going to be Fantastic Four because they're on the afterburner right now. Right. And Inhumans, I think, is still... They well, might. They, they might, might very yeah, well yeah. be Inhumans. Yeah. You know no. what? Another thing about it, because that's their biggest push right now. Yeah. And like They gave not, Charles Soleil un- uncanny Inhumans, but there's nothing saying that Bendis can't start like Inhumans. Yes. Type. Amazing Inhumans. All sure. new Inhumans. Hey, I'm not reading Inhumans. He can sit on that for a hundred yeah. years. Just please don't put him on Ms. Marvel. Ain't nobody got No, no, no. no. I, what the please is please don't put <laughs> him on Spider-Man. And who... No, no but they wouldn't take it away from Slot. Slot. Well, Slot. Slot is finishing his Spider-Verse, which I think is his big dot, dot, dot Spider-Man event. And after that, what do you do? He'll stick around. Oh, I, doubt I, I Slot. like Slot on Spider-Man. You know, yeah. I haven't, I'm not reading it in issues. I'm reading like trades right. that I borrow from friends, so I'm way, way on the back matter. But I like him on Spider-Man. He's made some decisions that I don't okay. agree with, but anyway. And the let other me big... have this. Bendis is Wait, gone. So the other big yes. question is, who's going to write the X-Men? Hey, if it's going to be a single else. writer, or now that there's no leading voice. Well, I think what usually happens is traditionally it's been the person who's writing Uncanny X Men is the person who determines the overall yeah. feel. So I'm hard pressed to think of someone who could do a worse job than Bendis, because really, like he, for all his technical skills, it's the decisions he did things that I just didn't understand. The young X-Men coming to the present. That's, future and the past. Yes, and that, the that's the sort of thing that could work, you know, as a one-off story. But How then, long has it been now? Ever since he started running it. Like two, three years now? 
And it's the same thing with the Sentry when he brought it into the Avengers. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a cute story. What if Superman was in the Avengers? But then he just kept on dragging it and yeah. dragging. He can't let go of an idea. Exactly. Just and that's... Back and, uh, yeah. and I mean, that has been the... Because he determined like the overall tone, all of the books have been dealing with this time-traveling X-Men thing. And it's just not something that can sustain... So, but the question is, who's Marvel's next big push guy? Because it's not going to be Hickman, he's off the Avengers, and he's probably off the Marvel Universe to focus on his image work. Oh, you know who it's going to be. Who? Our old friend, the ubiquitous Charles Soleil. No. <laughs> no, the thing with Charles Soleil is that he's, you know, he can write pretty much anything in Marvel these days, but they still keep him on... Well, no, no, not low burner titles, because well, he's... He not, did the Death of Green. Yeah, but he... But would they let him write the Eternal No, the two big franchises at the same time, the humans and the X Men. Well that, that assumes that that's the X Men But that assumes that the X Men are going to be a big franchise following Super Well they, they have always been a big franchise. Marvel won't yes. you know drop their sales on purpose. They could drop um, the Fantastic Four because the Fantastic Four is a naturally low selling title for the last ten years? Yes. More the X-Men, if you drop the X-Men, if you tell people the X-Men don't matter anymore, well, congratulations, you just like... Not that they don't matter, like, but that they're not A-listers anymore. Like, I can see that happening. Look at what they've been doing with Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, right? That whole reset to make them not mutants so that they... But... There's, there's something to the notion but that... But isn't the optimal point for Marvel is that people think that both the X-Men and the Inhumans are A-list? If, not, they, if they were thinking properly, then yes, have they ever made smart decisions? I mean, look, I wouldn't be surprised if they gave Uncanny X-Men to someone who is not an established name. All of the really brilliant people are over at Image doing their own thing or, you know, bending under editorial pressures at DC. Who do they really have that hasn't been... I think Marvel have enough clout that if they, you know, raise their hand into the... I think Marvel has enough clout. If they raise their hand to the air, you know, a dozen of writers will come and sure. flock to their flag. I mean, look, I'm sure that I'm going to have something to say when the announcement for the successor comes in. I'm just glad that this is gone. Maybe and it's going to be Mark Wade. Because he had a... Has a, he ever done it? Oh, a very oh, short oh, run. He had a very short one. which was Onslaught. Pl- yeah, which was plagued by the Onslaught thing. Oh, so that would be a good opportunity. He's back on the rise, Wade. And he's an old-time writer who can do these things justice. Yeah. I can see Mark Boyd on the X-Men. Sure. I'd sure. be okay with that. In related news, DC has announced that they are dropping their new 52 branding in Dune and are launching, I think, 24 or 25 new books. Yeah. Now, this is very clearly a response to Secret Wars, but I have to say it's the kind of competition where the readers are the one who win in the end. Like, if DC feel like they have to try harder, they're not wrong. There's a lot of new titles announced. Yeah. Uh, some of them are interesting. Some of them are just bizarre. Like, there's an ongoing Bet My title by Dan Jurgens. Yeah. How long has it been since Dan Jurgens did anything? No, no, no. no. He, he was writing Superman recently, I think. What? One of them. Was he? I think... I don't know. The, these titles... They <laughs> but anyway, but Dan Jurgens doing Bet My. That's a weird one. But note the pattern here. Like, I'm, We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, because We'll most wait of them, for the previews. When, when it turns cut. up in the previews in yeah. June, we'll talk about it. But but look at these interesting choices. So there's a Bizarro book, right? Yeah. By Heath Corson. I don't know who that is. Ming Doyle, 
she's writing Constantine the Hellblazer with James Tinian the Fourth. James Tinian the Fourth is also doing Midnighter. Uh, sorry, he's doing Dark Universe. Yes. Steve Orlando is doing Midnighter. He's the guy who did Undertow for Image. I did not like the show Undertow, I. so I never And quite frankly, it. I'm not sure why we need a Midnighter they, they tried ongoing with, yeah, they in tri- the new 52. Well, they tried it with Garth Ennis, which was okay. Was Wild Storm. Yeah. Like, when he's in the DCU with Batman, that seems like a bit extraneous. But anyway, Omega Men by Tom King... Uh, Prez by uh, Mark Russell, okay, Section yeah. 8 by Garth okay. Ennis and John McRae. Okay. That's either a reason for celebration or for anger. Section 8 were side characters in Hitman, Yes, for my money is the best thing that Ennis ever done and one of my favorite titles in the history of comic books. So you're invested in that. No, <laughs> that's the thing. For me, Hitman was perfect, the golden ideal, and I really don't want the 10 years later sequel Starring, these were the comedic sociopath characters. Which works for Ennis in small doses, but whenever he goes over, over the top, it just loses his joke. It's, you know, Garth Ennis' dicks. Yes. That's not, I, I'm an Ennis fan. That's not a thing that I want to read on a, on a regular basis, even as a miniseries. He's best in very short doses. He is extreme comedy. I like long form uh, Ennis when he's serious. I like his Punisher, I like his Hitman. Okay, Any other it. books that... Uh... Um, Paul Levitt oh, <laughs> in writing uh... Dr. Fate. Well, haven't we suffered enough? I'm not sure. Colin Bunn, who is in competition with Charles Soleil for most <laughs> busy writer, is doing Green Lantern Lost Army. And I'm not... Scott Lovdell no. has a book. Scott Lovdell has, I think, two books. Wow. And they're giving another shot to Martian Manhunter, which never worked as an ongoing title. He never left it, I think, over 20 issues. He's like the Vision in the Avengers. He's, yeah. he's best used as a supporting character in a team book. That's his shtick. It's like, even in the Justice League animated series, he was never like a solo character, right? He never had his own storylines or his own adventures. But they want to try. Let him try. And we are Robin by Lee Barmejo as a writer. Is that like We Are the Borg, You Will Be Assimilated? I don't know. Well, you know, Robin is a very popular Tumblr character, I assume. It's, you know, Which the Robin? young people like the Robin. All of them. All of them. Tumblr has a very strange fixation with Nightwing's buttocks. Yes. But I don't... Well, Robin, okay, yeah. whatever. It's hard not to see these books as a reaction to the criticism that DC has been getting since the New 52, right? It's been said very often that when they made the transition after Flashpoint, they sacrificed a lot of good characters and story and content. And that the DCU that emerged afterwards was sort of... It was the lesser for being homogenized. Yes, and homogenized by Jim Lee. All people. Well, Jim Lee, uh, Jeff Johns had a big part in that. Yeah. Like It felt like a lot Dull. of the same. Yeah. And these books specifically, I mean, Gotham Academy is a good example of like trying to think outside the box. But this reads like a much more concentrated and coordinated push. I mean, Prez? Bizarro? This is like two or three crises ago. Yeah, but it's important to remember that post uh, the first New 52 wave had a lot of titles that were irregular in genre, if not in presentation. They had their war titles, their war titles, and they, they, just, they just didn't take. Man at War was never going to be a huge hit, but they tried and tried with Combat Comics or whatever the other name was. So the question is, we have all these books, which appear interesting, you know, at least in the idea of them. 
but when the dust settles, will we have again in six months' time the another you know homogenized DC universe where everything that's not towing the mainstream line fails? Because they're trying, and the public is telling them again and again, well, no, we don't really want that. I hate to sound pessimistic, but I do think it's going to fail for the reason that we mentioned last time when we talked about universal mediums, right? The problem at the core is that who's still running DC? It's still Denton Deal, right? Jeff Johns is still their creative officer of whatever. So, yes, these books are launching. But I think that, to a very large extent, readers are picking up on the fact that they are peripheral books. That the company, that DC, considers them to be peripheral books. So why should you be invested in something like Demon Knights when you don't think it's going to last the year anyway? Like, if the cancellation is coming because DC doesn't genuinely believe in these books they're just putting it out no i to I, create a facade of diversity i don't blame dc because why they, because demon knights lasted more than a year and so did not by much frankenstein and well two years then yeah when it's not selling you know there is a limit to how long you can push it if the public doesn't support demon knights and frankenstein agent of shade and olmec and all the titles they had at the time which did have a character of their own mm-hmm. and not a jeff jones jim lee wannabe who can blame them? In this case, it's I don't blame them. See, no, I do because they don't do enough to. I mean, and we've talked about this in the past. Yes, they don't do enough to promote these books, right? If you are hearing about, you know, an Omega Men book by the guy who co-writes Grayson, which is a good book, and you pick up Omega Men, you don't have any reason to think that this book is going to last twelve issues. In between crises, right? Assuming that an event doesn't derail, which at DC happens more often. Not well. It happens. Why to Marvel, you, you know? Yeah, Marvel. At least they stick to their guns a little bit more. Not by much, because they are canceling Ghost Rider, and I am pissed at that. But DC, it, it seems like when they project the message that these books don't quote unquote count, then why should you feel like you should read this book? It's just going to get canceled out from under your feet. That's the worst feeling as a, a reader of serial comics when you're in the middle of a story and then canceled. I think both of these big companies, you know, suffer from the same problem and blaming DC for that. When Marvel is also canceling titles left and right, you really like the left right, gone. You really like yes. Shield, gone. We both like uh, Secret Avengers, off the chopping block in and, less than two years. And yet, and yet, moving on to the next item okay. related, during Secret Wars, Marvel announced that they'll be replacing the Avengers with A Force. This is an all-female team. Co-written by G. Willow Wilson and Marguerite Bennett. Wilson needs no introduction at yes. this point. Uh, Bennett's been doing well as Kieran Gillen's co-writer on um, Angela. Angela. I have not read Angela. How it's, is it? It's going pretty well. So this is a team that includes She-Hulk and Dazzler and Medusa and Nico from The Runaways. Can we just stop for one second? That's sure. a horrible title. Yes, it is. That's just bad. Because you know what's going to happen. Yes. You know what's going to happen. Yes. Smarter. Some meninist idiot is going to put T and in front of the title. It doesn't even it oh, doesn't matter. Even without just the, the thought. Even without the obvious jokes, it's a bad title. What, what's A Force? They're going for X Force yes. with Avengers. Yeah, X Force really works bad. as a title because X is, you know, a mysterious, a cool letter. Yeah. A is just an A. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about it, A Force sounds like an Ian Rand Appreciation Society. <laughs> a Force? What force? Yes. What do you mean? A force is a force. Of course, of course. <laughs> but, you know, call it the Avengers. But this is what differentiates, I think, 
Marvel from DC in terms of what we were talking about before. Because yes, many of the books that they published with the intent of promoting female superheroes went bust. Electro was canceled. She-Hulk was canceled. I think Black Widow's getting there. Probably. It doesn't look good over there. The all-female uh, X book went from mediocre run to mediocre run. So yes, there's that. But here you see that they are still trying along the same lines. In other words, this female title didn't work. We're launching a new female title with creators who, quite frankly, have a better shot of making it work. I didn't have any problems with Charles Soleil's writing on She-Hulk, but there were criticisms of the arts, and I could understand it. Well, who's the artist on Night Force? I have no idea. See, that's a big question, because there was the other big launch of the Avengers title, which was Mighty Avengers by L. Ewing and Greg Land. Yeah. So, that was a title that could go places, and didn't, because Greg Land. Because I, what's Greg Land doing right now? Hopefully, if we were lucky, the answer to that question would be nothing. But if we are unlucky, maybe the answer is a Spider Woman. No, no, right. no, no. They'll let Al do Ewing. It. Al Ewing would not have had a problem with working with Greg Land. We talked about this yeah. last time. It's like, okay, they just seem to get along. I have a hard time believing that G Willow Wilson, of all people, would be okay with Greg Land doing the art on a Force because. Her and Marguerite Bennett both have been very vocal about not going back to the TNA yeah. style. But let's face it, I mean, that's what Greg Land does, right? Porn tracing comics. That's that's his thing. So I like I don't think that they would be okay with that. But, I mean, this is a book that I will check out, despite the fact that I am avoiding Secret Wars like Plague. And I don't know what I'll be doing with the Marvel Universe afterwards. Because I'm not sure I'll, I'll that read I'm the, I'll read the good and dispose of the bad, like yeah. I always do. You know, if but it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad, and I don't care for anything else. That's really all, all that we can say at this point. Well, speaking of women, yes. congratulations to Sana Amanat, Marvel editor and co-creator of Kamala Khan, who has been given the position of Marvel's director of content and character development. Apparently a new position. Okay. She's not replacing anyone in an existing role. There are two ways to read this. There's like the cynical way and the idealistic way. The cynical read is that it's lip service because there hasn't been any discussion about what this title actually means. Does she have any real power within Marvel editorial? The other is that that particular title could be seen as a parallel. Jeff Johns is, um, his, his official position at DC is chief creative officer. And I don't have any doubt that Johns has a big say in how things go. Yeah, I think the difference is when you're talking about new character development is, you know, what the name suggests is they're trying to develop new property, which... It's not new character development, it's just character ah, development. okay. Which could include existing content. So yeah, because sure. if there's one problem, well, there are a lot of problems. If there's a big problem for Marvel is that they constantly sell themselves out as an IP factory. You know, we have all these characters, and when you look at it, they haven't actually created anything new since what the runaways anything new that can be its own thing you know a tv show a movie without being connected to it's an x-men spin-off it's an avenger spin-off you mean without being connected to the existing yeah. marvel universe something, no not not just the Mar something that is a part of the marvel universe but you can say you know i could see that as a tv series i could see that as a movie on its own would it be in humans that's not new that's like 60 years old by now i'm saying did marvel create new characters 
Okay, that's, that's it. W- that's one. Yeah. Um, and and even that, you know, it's a it's a that, recreation, but they're using the name of an older right, property. Right. I mean, she's sort that, of like a legacy. And that's odd that's because, awesome. like many people say, pop culture, especially nowadays, is a very fast moving thing. You know, a two year old recording artist is an, is old news, but in comic books, like everybody's talking about, you know, Kamala Khan. Everybody's talking about Deadpool. It took Deadpool 20 years since his creation to become an household name. In pop culture terms, he's been famous, he's been unfamous, he became famous again for something embarrassing, and then he died. But in comic books, everything Deadpool's is so... Dead? No, I'm saying if he were a pop culture phenomenon in every other meaning. If he were oh. a movie, oh, or yeah. a song, or what have you. Yeah. But in comic books, everything is so slow to react. That, you know, we don't have anything new because, you know, you create a character and maybe 20 years down the line, somebody will do something with it. Yeah. What's a new IP for Marvel? They're caught in, I think, the same logic loop as DC, which is, it's not going to sell, so we're not going to make it because it's not going to sell, so we're not going to make it. Also, why would any creator want to create a new character and then watch him become a movie thing or a TV thing and not get a single penny for it? Yeah. I mean, the legend of Steve Gerber is no Yeah, at the olden days, Marvel was the only game, DC was the only game. Nowadays, if you have a new idea, if you want to create a new character, you know, you do it in an image book. Yeah. But there you go. Like, that might actually be the answer. Yeah. Because we have read image books that could have worked in either the DCU or Marvel, but you're absolutely right. Why would you? And apparently DC has better contracts about these things than Marvel because Len Wein at one time said... That he got more money for Lucius Fox appearing in the Batman movies than he did for Wolverine, which is, you know, in every logical sense, is wrong. That, that might explain it then. I mean, yeah. and I can't, I can't begrudge them okay. for taking. What them. other titles did she edit, by the way, beside uh, Miss Marvel? Because well, the official news announcements that talked about her promotion only mentioned that she was a general editor. Nothing specific about the books that she edited. But she is being credited as co-creating Ms. Marvel yeah. with G. Willow Wilson, which speaks to an amount of success on its own. I think she was the editor on Rocket Raccoon, no? She might be. Even if Kamala Khan is her only accomplishment, there's no question that that would have been Marvel's most successful new character in years, I think. Thinking back now, I legitimately cannot remember another character being received as quickly because Kamala Khan was already popular by the definition of, of comic book characters before her first arc was done. Yes. So I think that maybe Spider-Gwen was received. Although yeah. That, that hasn't Sp- even come out yet. And it has a Spider-Man name to bounce yeah. off. And Kamala Khan is Captain Marvel, which is, isn't as big as a property as Spider-Man. So right. Well, it's also because she doesn't derive her identity from... Like, she doesn't dress yeah. like... Ms. Marvel did in the She could have very well God. been, you know, a different name. If Marvel wanted their, to have a different IP, yeah. they could have told you and Willis and called her, I don't know, Ultra Girl. And, or... and really, Ms. Marvel is not an A-lister, so it's not like the name gave well, her anything. Well, Marvel wants you to think she's an A-lister. No, they want you to think Carol Danvers is an A-lister. But the name Ms. Marvel, like historically yeah. speaking, when Carol Danvers was in the black leotard yeah. with the mask, that's not her at her most popular. So, like, the fact that she's Ms. Marvel is because, you know, she worships the ground Carol yeah. Danvers walks on. But you're right. Like, she could have had any other name and the character would have still been the same. I think back to DC's third Blue Beetle, Jamie Reyes. Yeah. 
Now, they did work it out in the end, and they created some sort of a legacy, but it could have been everything. They could have named him whatever they wanted, and they chose Blue Beetle because... These well, companies it's a tradition. Well, with DC specifically, it's a tradition of having characters come in and inherit existing titles. Yeah, but... The titles don't belong to them. Yeah, but, you know, Jamie Reyes and Kamala Khan has nothing to do with these characters outside of... Well, they really like them. You know, Jamie Reyes' power set, appearance, and origin have nothing to do right. with either of the, the original Blue Beetles. Likewise, Kamala Khan's powers and appearance and anything has nothing to do with Carol Danvers. And that, when you think about it, that's just weird. Why, if you have something, why would you have to connect it to something which is historically not very successful? Because that's how you make it successful. Like, the name Ms. Marvel will ring more bells today than it ever did when Carol Danvers was yeah. Ms. Marvel. That's how you make a title. When Kamala Khan eventually gets off the stage, because, you know, it'll happen sooner or later, the next Ms. Marvel will be in a better position than this Ms. Marvel. But going back to the, uh, the question of, you know, what has Amanat done? Even if she hasn't edited anything else, making Marvel's most popular character, or co-creating it, is in itself, I think, an accomplishment. That if, and if she can spread that around and sort of break up the Alonzo Casada Bendis group thing, go for it. Yeah, we'll you see. Know, we'll, we'll all be better off. We'll see what's coming. Mm -hmm. One last bit of news that you basically talked about. No? Well, we were right, weren't yeah. we? So, uh, yes, this is the We Were Right panel. Spider-Man is officially joining the MCU. No, you were right. I didn't believe it at the time. Well, we in the Smorgasbord ah, have okay. expressed... <laughs> the we, Royal we, I'm taking you with us. We discussed this a few episodes ago, the whole notion of Spider-Man in the MCU, should he be in the MCU? Neither of us, I think, are very happy about it, especially mm -hmm. since it's been confirmed that they're dropping Andrew Garfield and looking for a new Spider-Man and they're going back to high school again. And it's not Miles Morales. They're confirming that yeah. it's Peter Parker. So, basically, I think some of that, some more. People getting angry about it not being Miles Morales, I think, have been working themselves up to anger because it's no. obviously, it was not going to be Miles it Morales. It could have been, though. What reason can you give me, in the film medium specifically, considering that we have five Peter Parker films that have been in steady decline since the first one, what justification is there for doing Peter Parker again? He's the biggest icon in Marvel history. Spider-Man is the biggest icon. Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Peter, I'm not anymore. I, I, well, I'm sorry. That hasn't even been true. I mean, Ben Riley, Doctor Octopus as Spider-Man. Uh, no, no. Spider Gwen, Spider Woman. Comic, comic readers know these guys. For the public at large, Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Batman is Bruce Wayne, and you know, Superman is Clark Kent. You can do it in the comics. You can change it all the time, but. Spider-Man is not like other comic characters. Spider-Man, Batman, and Superman are icons but in League of Their Own. This is true for Spider-Man. My question is, why does it have to be Peter Parker specifically? Because they have said, this movie, which, by the way, to add insult to injury, by inserting this movie into the schedule, they have delayed Captain Marvel and Black, Black Panther, Panther, which were actually movies that I was more excited yeah. about than another origin story. Or another, they've said it won't be an origin story, but I mean, come on. To do Peter Parker again, after Tobey Maguire, after uh, uh, Andrew Garfield, and Andrew Garfield was good in the role, I'm not saying he wasn't, 
But, you know, for whatever reason, they decided to get rid of him. And they're doing it again. And again with Aunt May, and again with Great Power no, Comes Responsibility. And that's the big question. Who is doing it? Because the deal is... It doesn't matter. No, the deal is that Spider-Man is in the Marvel Universe movies, but Sony is still the owners. Yes. So the solo series, whatever its form it's going to take from now on, is going to be Sony. No, no, no. The deal that they made stated that... First of all, they're recasting Spider-Man. Yes. The movie that is going to come out, the Spider-Man movie, will be an MCU movie... That Sony owns. So Sony gets the profits for that. But Marvel gets the profits for Spider-Man's participation in Avengers. Now. Yes. So in that sense, there is more input now from Marvel. And like we said last time, I think this is the, the outcome that Spider-Fans specifically were hoping for is this. Because Kevin Feige is not going to screw up Spider-Man the way that Sam Raimi and Mark Webb did. I mean, Marvel Studios yeah. will have a better grasp of this character. Yeah. They even... Did you see that little image they put out online? No. To announce it, they basically did like this spider web with a little metallic spider in the corner that read, Welcome Home. Okay. Which was cute and sentimental, but it still... It brings me back to that question of why Peter Parker again? We've already seen two incarnations of this character. Two reboots. And... But none of them was what? very good. They weren't very good. No. But... We've still seen it. Like, I cannot imagine sitting in a theater and watching Uncle Ben getting murdered again. Like, enough already. With this, I believe that to Marvel when they say, we're not going to do the origin story. Sony, I think, is stupid enough to do it again. Yeah. When he appears in the Marvel Universe movies in whatever form it's going to take, the cameo, the guest appearance, the team up in the Avengers or whatever... They're not going to do the origin story. They're just going to. Oh do it no! Straight. I mean, how would you? Where would you find the time to do Peter Parker origin in Avengers? Yes, that's absurd. I I just feel but like this I, would be the opportunity to bring Miles Morales in as an alternative. You don't need to get rid of Peter Parker, but I honestly feel like it's been ten years, no, fifteen years since the first Spider-Man, and he's been rebooted twice. Let it go for a little bit. This is this principle of like letting it rest and coming back to it after a while and bring in another character. I would say Spider-Woman, but quite frankly, you know, they're not there yet. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Miles Morales, I feel like it could have happened, but it didn't. So more Peter Parker for those who love Peter Parker and aren't seeing them yet. Okay. That's the news? That's it? Yep. We were quick this time. Well, not a lot happened. Yeah. Thank God, you know, usually we have After last time. Yeah. (laughs) Everything happened. Woo! So, shall we start with the reviews? Let's start with the reviews. Okay. So we have three new number ones. Yes, and the first one, obviously, uh, Nameless Number One by Grant Morrison and Chris Burnham from Image. That's Morrison's second Image personal title after, what was it, two years ago? Happy. Yes. Which was a miniseries. Not a very good one. So, the big high concept was that it's a Morrison horror title. That was how they published it. And Morrison hasn't actually done horror for a long, long time. He had short stories in, what was it, Veracity Comics? The R-rated horror magazine, which was by the Glenn Denzig, or whatever. Oh, yeah. oh. And they were pretty good comics, you know. The magazine itself, as a package, yeah, wasn't some good I want to be caught reading in public, but <laughs> it had a lot of good creators working on it. That's true. That's the skin Bible and such by Morrison. But the actual comic is interesting. It started off as an odd dream sequence because it's Morrison Burnham. And then quickly, and it's a bit of a spoiler, I guess, 
It, spoil away. Yeah, no, 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 not I don't want to spoil away. It quickly becomes obvious that what we have here is Grant Morrison's Inception, which was not something I expected. Our protagonist is a, someone without a name, by his choice, who deals in stealing stuff from dreams for whatever shady employer hires him. And his latest job is gone awry, and people are chasing him, and he meets his mysterious employee, who invites him to do the biggest job of his career, which might determine the fate of the Earth. And then from Inception, we move on to a completely different movie, which I will not say, because that's a spoiler. And that's it. It's very, very light on the plot. That's one way to put it. Okay, I see you are not happy. I was happy with this, so you'll you, start. Well, let, let me... Before I, hmm, I feel the, the Hickman Agro button coming up. But no, 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 no Hickman Agro. No, 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 no Hickman Agro this okay. time. Okay, let me ask you: Are you coming back for another issue? No, I'm waiting for the trade. Because? Well, I've been doing it a lot lately, and I want to give it some breathing room. Okay. So here we go. Okay. I try not to judge books by their covers, but as soon as I saw those sigils, I was like, whoop. Here we go again with Morrison and chaos magic and pretentious metaphysics and anti-universal shadows or whatever. This was kind of a double whammy after The Dying of the Dead because what a random ass mess this issue was. There's no sense of flow. The dialogue is so incredibly stilted. And you mentioned the dream sequence, right? And you compare it to Inception. Inception was coherent. Even when, you know, the roads are flipping over and all of these things are happening, you understand what you're seeing. The first half of this book is this dream sequence where it's like, he's bouncing around and it's like, death toll horror, death toll horror, death toll horror. Hey, did you know this place was called Nan Madol? Il And then it just keeps going on and on. see, that's why I liked it and I didn't like Inception. No, I, I'll rephrase it again. Okay. I enjoy Inception as an action movie with odd physics. Mm-hmm. I thought Inception trying to say, well, this is a dream was a terrible idea because... Nolan can't do dream, he can't do whimsy, he can't do odd, he can't do strange flow of consciousness. Uh, Fair enough. One reviewer said, I don't remember who, I think it was A.O. Scott, in Christopher Nolan's dream, everybody is dressed like it's a mid-90s action movie and acts like it. Here, that's an actual, you know, dream logic. And Morrison, more than anybody else, is very good at doing dream logic. So Unfortunately, the problem with dream logic It doesn't have that sort of here and gone consistency. These are actual narrative captions that follow one another on a page. Sign of Pisces. Hebrew letter nun means fish, which by the way it doesn't. Never mind. Fish and death, and death is dath. What does it mean? Your guess is as good as mine. And the entire issue plays out this way, even after he wakes up in the dream sequence. Here's the problem with dream logic. Reading it becomes a chore. It becomes something that I had to stop, eat some chocolate, psych myself up to keep going. It's like getting teeth pulled out. And I think that if you allow me to be a little cynical here, and we're going to go to war on this one, I'm starting to think that Morrison is doing this on purpose because confusion works for him. You drop a bunch of abstract, meaningless drivel to distract the reader from the simple fact that there's no there there. What do you know about the protagonist? Not a clue. You have no idea what he's doing. You have no idea what's happening. 
And really, like, you could spend hours trying to decipher this, right? You can read it backwards, upside down, inside out. You might even emerge with some kind of interpretation that you could explain to another person without them committing you to a mental institution. But that's you imposing a framework, like Nolan, right? Imposing a framework of order on something that should not have a direction or logic. And I said this last time about Hickman, but it applies to Morrison here too, and I really wish that writers would hear me when I say this. We don't owe you anything. We are not obligated to pay for comics and then sit through lectures about concepts that you find interesting, unless you, as storytellers, give us a reason to do it. We didn't put up with this kind of impenetrable BS when it was Ray Fox's Intersect. We took one look at that comic and we're like, okay, I see that you're doing something here. I don't know what it is. We're not going to read it. Okay, but for me, there's... Why should Morrison get differently? Well, well their big difference with uh, Intersect was that this was actually readable in terms of presentation. You mean no, because of the art? Yeah, because Chris, okay. be Chris Burnham, A, Chris Burnham doing work is excellent. I know him usually as an ex-artist. You know, he did Morrison's letter half of Batman Incorporated. He did Officer Down with Joe Casey. So I know him as this guy who does vicious, brutal, R-rated action thing. And here he does horror, and he does weird, and he's great at it. Yes. The artwork is, now, is very now good. I, not now, I said it about Morrison before. Morrison is a very confusing writer at times, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, which is why he needs always needs a clear artist, which is why he works so well with Frank Whiteley. And why, for me, Batman Arkham Asylum is his worst book. Because it's a very unclear storytelling fed through someone who's not a very good... With all the respect to... Uh, who did no, who did Arkham Asylum, the artist? Uh, oh, God. You're, you're taking me too far back. Yeah, uh, the, the artist Sand of Arkham Asylum. covers. Um, the Cage? No. I, I'm trying to blank. Wow, wow I, I'm, I'm shameful about myself. Anyway, with all the respect, that wasn't a very well-told comics with all the blots and photorealism. And... So here I can actually understand, if it makes sense to you, what I'm not supposed to understand. I could see the confusion. And unlike Hickman, this is fast. This is rapid. This is 22 pages which move on, which engage me in their strangest. And I'm not stopping and trying to... I did not stop. I did not try to understand. I just went with the flow. And I think Morrison is very good with that. For me, this is not unique. This is interesting. I'm enjoying going with it. And I think that Morrison is actually very clear when he wants to be clear, because when the comics reaches its... He can be, yeah, when, but he's not no, no, here. No, because when the comic reaches its midpoint, he's basically saying, stop. This is what happened up until now. This was Inception. They're basically stopping to tell you. And now, here's what's going to happen in the next part of the story. But immediately after he wakes up from the dream, suddenly he's on a bus and a guy's pulling his head off to turn into a fish. And, it, you know, and that, that was great. Why? Why is that happening? What does it mean? It's terrifying. Happening? But what does it mean? Terror comes from context. No, that was, you are still, afraid that was because... still part of the dream. No. No, ter- no. When he gets on the bus, he's already awake because he has that whole that's scene. The, where oh, right. That's he's the talking to a larva, yeah. wife, husband. Yeah, yeah the cult is husband. chasing him in both the dream and the real life. And Morrison is playing on the blur, which he has done before. Now, for me, terror doesn't come from understanding. Opposite. Terror comes from not being sure, from having your footing drop beneath you. How do you know you're supposed to be scared? I'm not. That's why I'm scared. Because I don't know what's going on. If you know that there's a monster chasing you, well, it's a monster. You know, you arm yourself and you shoot it with silver bullets. If you don't know what's happening, if you're not even being sure that you're being chased, 
for me, that's far more terrifying. But if you don't know that you're being chased, you have no reason to trigger like that fearful instinct. The feeling that something is wrong. And again, part of it is Burnham, who's doing the Bar- feeling that yeah, something is Burnham wrong. Yeah, Burnham does better well. than, than most of Morrison's collaborators. In... I, I think Burnham and Quietly are on equal footing with Morrison. They get what he's aiming for. Good for them, because I don't. I, I do. You have a bad run with Morrison recently. You don't like his recent stuff, where he's going, you know, to the Morrisonness of the Morrison. But this is the thing. Our first episode, right? Yeah. We reviewed Multiversity. Yes. And I had the same problem there in the sense of here are 22 pages. Having read these 22 pages, I cannot tell you what this story is about. I can. I have no idea. There are like these random things that happen. And you saw like the text. Yes. Is so ridiculously obscure. What does sign of Pisces and the Hebrew letter Nun and fish and death and doth? What does that have anything to do with anything? I'm sure that he thinks there's some kind of very obvious connection between these things. But unless your intention is to sit down and like write a thesis about it, my God, speaking as someone who, you know, you picked this book off the shelf, you're paying, what is it, $3 for it? Yeah. You should be able to walk away with a sense of, I get something. But this is a complete waste of time. And, And you know what? That's okay. This is the price we pay for a company that values creators. Sometimes they just let them off the chain and they go do whatever they want. And I disagree. I do not think it's a waste of time or a waste of money. And I think it's very... How is the script for this issue different from Intersect? Hmm? Because Because when we read it, like the reason that we didn't review Intersect at the time is that we read the first issue. Twice. Twice. And we did not, like, people were talking and they were saying things to each other. And they were moving from one place to another. But could you understand yeah, what was happening I, but there? I can understand what's happening here. I can understand. He's a dream thief. And then he wakes okay. up. And then he meets his employer who tells him, oh, we have a bigger job for you. Spoiler. It's Spoiler. on the moon. On the moon. Okay. And so. it's Armageddon. There's an evil planet coming to eat us. Where did you get that? He the told, last issue shows you like the, he told the him. asteroid. What? He told him, we're going to the moon. There's something evil coming. I'm sorry for me. That's clear. That's perfectly understandable plot mechanic. The details... You're talking about the last two pages. Though. Yes, the details are a bit funny. What about the first 20? <laughs> no, not the first 20. He gets chased bit. by this cult. Who are this cult? Who are they? What do they want? Why are they around that nobody seems to mind? I enjoy the mystery and the oddness of it. And Intersect, I didn't enjoy it because there was no flow. And because I didn't even know someone is being chased or unchased. Intersect, which was a title I could enjoy, I could see myself enjoying was crossing the line from mysterious to impenetrable. So I because, feel that, that this book doesn't sound. Ah, well, I don't. Because I think that if you didn't know that it was Morrison and you were just reading it, the pages come one after the other, but there's no sense of connectivity. Like, in the middle of the issue, like, the scene that where he supposedly, like, yeah. what it's implying is that he wakes up from the dream state, right? And the next thing you know, he's on the bus. Yes. Where's the scene where he actually wakes up? I don't know. Because if you didn't know that, if you didn't intuit that somehow, you would assume that he's still in the dream state. Because he keeps going around and like, you know, the bus driver has yes. the fish head. So is that actually happening? Is that in his dream? And his own narrative captions, his, his inner thoughts don't illuminate us. Like there's no point here where Nameless, the protagonist, explains in a way that would make sense to the reader. Where are we? Am I awake? Am I asleep? What? If, why am I doing this thing? What's the point of it? It's, you know, first issue quandaries. 
you, you're willing to wait this out like in, in trade form because yes. you know like your position is that Morrison will eventually pay it off. Some of it is yeah, love for the creator and trusting the creator because you know for me he's been successful with this before. Some of it is I enjoy the mood of it. As a mood piece, I like Dream Logic stuff if okay. it's performed correctly and for me this is it. And you know Trusting the creator is not a thing. No. Something like A Serious Man, the movie. If it wasn't the Coen brothers, many people would have quit halfway through the movie because what is this? And really, the payoff was that there was no payoff. But they pulled it off. It's not a question of what do you do, it's how do you do it. For me, Morrison and Burnham, in Nameless Number One, do it almost perfectly. Okay. If you want to be confused, like me sometimes, <laughs> this is the comp to confuse you okay. pro- good and proper. Okay. Shall so we, this is a contentious first issue. We're yeah. Disagree uh, shall we try uh, something a bit issue. more clear? Sure. Yeah. Cluster number one, one from uh, four. A four, right? That's a four-issue mini. Cluster? No, it's a. It's an ongoing. Really? I, I thought so. it was a mini. Okay. Uh, it's by Ed Brisson, art by Damien Cusero and Michael Garland, and published by Boom. Boom. Yes. Yeah. We're going indie today. Yeah. <laughs> so the high concept here is criminals are able to trade their prison sentences for military services. Which is a good thing because in humanity space. in space, of course, <laughs> because humanity is having difficulty colonizing alien worlds, and they need more bodies for the fight. The underlying implication that one of the secondary yeah. characters mentioned is that crime on Earth has become so extreme in the sense that criminals are being punished with punishment is prison, yeah, loitering for and loitering, yeah. shoplifting, what have you, in order for the army to have more troops. Yes. Cheaper troops. And of course, this first issue follows a group of prisoners who are put into the military and sent out to capture this uh, alien resource planet. Alien what facility, have you. and they get into fights with the natives. Uh, what have you, by the way, all the prisoners are female. That's a female prison we're following. We're following a female well, yeah. squad. The yeah. prison itself seems co-ed because the model prisoner that they bring out is a man. Right, right, right. So it seems but to be all, a co-ed prison, but it's a female yeah, But squad. 90% of our leads are female, yes. with exception of the army sergeant guy. Yes. So, um, okay, there are a few recognizable cues here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this reads like a combination of Bitch Planet, Suicide Squad, and The Ballad of Halo Jones. I thought about Old Man's War by uh, Scalzi. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's less of a comic book touchstone than generic sci-fi stone. I could see it as, you know, a military sci-fi book published by Bean in 2000-what? Bean Books. I mean, not a guy named Bean <laughs> in 2000-whatever uh, for, you know, the, the people who read this kind of stuff. And the big problem with this one is that it is very generic. Yes, that was exactly now, my problem. Yeah, the plot... Now, generic plot is fine in comic books because if you do the execution in an interesting way... Yes. Now, the cover... The alternative cover for this issue is by the guy who did the Orcs thing, James Stoker. Oh, I got the and, original one. Yeah. So well, I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's going to be exciting. And there's tons of interesting looking weapons and backgrounds and what have you. Because James Stoker is if nothing if not busy on the details. And then you read the issue and it's like, it's a regular alien planet with regular alien invaders holding the regular pulse weapons. Now, Damon Kushiro, the artist, does fine work. With what he's given, it's very colorful, it's very interesting. It's very clear. All, all the characters are distinct. I love the design for uh, Slareg, the, yeah. the stereotypical uh, big alien, alien girl. Yeah. So, uh, But he doesn't have anything interesting to work with. 
It's just that's the thing. Written script. I mean, there's nothing wrong with pastiche. Yeah. And really, like, if you're drawing on elements of Suicide Squad and Bitch Planet and and uh, whatever, right? What yeah. Avatar is in there too. These are not necessarily bad sources to draw on, but you're absolutely right that it's missing that spark of you know what is Brisson contributing himself to this mix? Yeah, we we've Where's mentioned twist. Yeah, I've mentioned Scalzi's Old Man War. Now mm-hmm. the Old Man War novel series as a whole is a Highland pastiche and aware of it, and it's also it's mostly very straightforward military action in the space thing. But Scalzi is very good at the storytelling chops of it Have and the characters. Down. I've read the first three, right? Not the he has another novel called Red Shirts. Yes. Yeah, Same but, but no, but that was Red Shirts was very self-aware. Yes. Yeah. And this is not self-aware. Not and there's a way to do it. If you want to do it straightforward, pile on the inventions, the new and make it interesting. And here it's just like it's where is the innovation? Even Samara, the protagonist, she's so colored by numbers because she's this noble prisoner whose father is a senator and could have bailed her out, but she chose to accept her punishment for whatever crime she committed. It's not... Well, it's pretty obvious there was an accident. She was actually to blame. Yeah, but I'll bet you anything that when they go into more detail about that, it'll turn out that it wasn't really her fault or that it was and that she's genuinely remorseful. Like, you know, she's a typical sympathetic prisoner who is guilty of her crime, but you don't see her as a prisoner. It's the Shawshank Redemption. Pretty much. It's the Shawshank Redemption. It's the blonde leading lady from Orange is the New Black. But it's old. It doesn't help that Bitch Planet got a huge promotional push before this book came out, because that's the obvious comparison. Well, yeah, but I think it's different. It's not a bad book. No. And I sort of see myself, you know, picking up back issues from the back bin if it was like a dollar each. I wouldn't even go that far. Well, enjoying it for the art, and maybe it's going for someplace interesting, but Actually, sitting down and reading it as an ongoing or even as a meaning. Either way. Yeah, it's it's just not worth it. I'm sorry. It's missing some sense of what is Brisson bringing to this formula. You compose this little Frankenstein monster of all of these generic tropes, and that's fine. But where's your contribution? What are you bringing here? I'm not coming back for another issue. Okay. Uh, A rare misfire for Boone. It happens. Better luck next time. Uh, another new uh, science fiction title. Well, oh, old new number one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dave, that's D four V E. So I'm not. Mm-hmm. Su- I'm not sure. Let's I'm call him Dave. Pro- yeah. Let's call it Dave. <laughs> let's keep it simple. Uh, by writer Ryan Friere and art by Valentin Ramon. Originally published digitally by Monkey Brain, and now sees print via IDW. I just want to put this yeah. out there that we are reviewing this because the alternative was a five dollar Darth Vader comic. So screw you, Marvel. But or another boom book, which we should you know spread them. There was no other boom book. Wasn't there help help us great warrior number one this week? I have heard nothing about this. We'll look at it later. I will look at it later. Having said that, if I have to choose between Darth Vader and Dave, I love this book so much. I I love this book so much that after reading the first issue and reviewing it, I immediately went to Comicsology and bought the rest of the miniseries. It's a five part miniseries. This is what I mean when I say, where's the innovation? Right? Yes. Where's the spark? Because this one also could have gone way off the rails as a generic Easily. Thing. Okay, the plot is, Dave is a retired war hero in future planet Earth, after the victory over all the alien species and what have you. Also, well, to be specific, it starts wait. after 
humanity is wiped out. Yeah. And then the okay, that, Yeah, that's the big thing is that Dave is a robot and in this version of the human-robot rebellion, well, the robot won. There was no Matrix, it just killed us all. And then they continued colonizing the rest of the galaxy until there is nothing but robots. And now they're very bored. And Dave is once a great war hero and now an office drone in unloving relations with a son who plays video games. <laughs> And, you know, drinking and taking drugs to pass on his meaningless existence. And, okay, the big problem with this could have been, and by all rights should have been, that he's too human. They basically start by saying, well, we've become humans because we had nothing better to do. And they act human, and there isn't really anything that makes them machines other than the design. But the book itself is so enjoyable in its going forwardness that you stop caring after five pages about the fact that it's a problem. Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that they justify that in the comic. Like, yeah. what Dave says when he, he narrates, he says, we ended up becoming human. And there's this panel, I think on page seven or eight, that illustrates it very beautifully, where there's a robot with a sign that says, we'll work for oil. <laughs> and another one is walking around with a leather jacket and, like, a metallic mohawk. Yeah. What he says is, we were programmed by humans and because we're machines, we can't help obeying our programming. So what else could we have become but humans? It's done so brilliantly. I mean, this is about, when you sum it up, it's like, it's a comic about a robot that's having an existential midlife crisis. Yes. Because humanity and all other living aliens have been exterminated by the machine uprising. And it's coming from someone who was on the vanguard. He was the defense bot. He had the medal. He was Rambo, yeah. He was the hero of a previous story that we're not reading. This is what happens after the robot conquest is complete, and his life is not great. No. And it's just, I adored this issue. Because, it's joyfully strange. Yeah. Or strangely and joyful. And the way that it plays with convention. It reminded me a little bit of the idea that machines become human. We saw that in Battlestar yeah. Galactica. But in Battlestar Galactica, they took it to like this amorphous religious thing. Here, he says it very simply, you know, we are machines. We will follow our programming no matter what. Unfortunately, our programming dictates that we must act like humans. And so having won all of these victories and having come home and settled Earth, there's really nothing left for us to do but go to robot strip clubs <laughs> and try to find meaning in relationships that are completely dysfunctional. His girlfriend, uh, Spy54LLY, or yes. Sally, as we'll call her, <laughs> is really dysfunctional. She keeps berating him, like, you forgot to bring the oil, and, and oil is the only thing we're living on, how could you forget it? And we ordered a son, and he just turned up. Did you forget that part, too? And it's just, he wants more from his life and he can't get it and it's such a human concept that's being filtered through this really bizarre science yeah. fiction now we mentioned like again if i mentioned zone scalzi earlier this is what would happen if someone from the second way of science fiction would have given three reigns over isaac asimov robot verse yes like i don't know ray bradbury doing well i can do whatever i want with your universe let's see how i can enjoy myself <laughs> and the it's art true. is gorgeous it's beautiful. It brought me to mind for Saga for some reason. I don't know why. The alien designs. Yeah, and the free flow of the movement. and It could have been serene looking if it wasn't showcasing all sorts of horrible things every once in a while. But it's, I, it's a universe I would like to visit, if not necessarily live in. Yeah, well, we, we wouldn't be living in it. We'd be yeah. dead. But, uh, 
See, now, for comparison's sake, yes. right? If I were to compare this to Nameless Number One, yes, I'm sure that part of the reason I'm loving this is because I understood every detail about this world within the first five pages. Yes. I know who Dave is. I know why he is the way he is. He's sitting there in this cubicle taking abuse from a boss that looks like a toaster. And it's completely absurd, but he presents it in such a way as this is why things are the way they are. And what do I do with it now? Like, where is it going forward? It creates a sense of, well, now I do want to know what's going to happen. As opposed to Nameless Number One, where you never find your footing. But don't you think that... And it innovates, unlike Cluster Number One. And now, there was a bit of a problem in the back of my mind, and I enjoyed reading this, and I think it's the best number one we had this week. Oh, yes. Is that, again, it's a bit too obvious and too human because it has all these notes. What's the difference? If this story would have been about a retired human war hero in the future, would it have been any difference? The annoying boss, the nagging wife, the unresponsive son? The issue here, it's because they're machines that the story is more poignant than it would be with humans. Because humans, you can say, okay, so like it's the future soldier coming home and working in a cubicle. He can always just get up and leave. But what Dave keeps saying is, you know, it's my programming. I can't do anything else. We were built by humans. We were instructed, we were programmed on how to do certain things. The tragedy of his character is that he can only move within the limitations of his programming. So he can go party at the Robot Strip Club, which is a hilarious splash page. Again, that's a very saga-ish thing. It is. Did that not to mind the first introduction you get with the robots when yeah, they're in yeah. bed and like having sex? And it's like, well... Why have, not? They have TV heads. <laughs> that's kind of weird. It is the fact that they're machines. And specifically that they're machines without any hope of ever finding humans to interact with. There's no humanity here. Humanity has gone extinct. Every other alien race in the galaxy apparently is extinct except for... Well, apparently. Well, apparently. Extinct. Yes. And... The fact that they're robots and that Dave keeps going back to the issue of programming is, I think, what adds that extra bit of poignancy that you wouldn't have with a human subject. Because if you're saying, like, the human soldier goes through a midlife crisis, they buy a Ferrari, they dump their wife, they get a girlfriend, they go off and live in whatever, and they do whatever they want. He can't even have a proper PTSD because he's not programmed to. Exactly. You can see that he's struggling with his, on the one hand, desire to go back to being a defense bot, but on the other hand, he does have these very weird flashbacks in the middle of the for no reason, in the middle of the night. Not flashbacks, daydreams. It's like, well, I could have been a great hero because one of them, he's a giant for some reason. Yeah, it's like, I was a great yeah, hero. Yeah. And now I'm not anymore. And it's the fact that they're robots, I think, that makes this from a generic yeah. future scenario into something Have more. you ever read anything by Freer before or no. after? I okay. knew his name from somewhere and I was trying, racking my brain trying to remember he had a series of backup strips called Tiger Claw Lawyer. Lawyer. Oh, right. Or Tiger Lawyer. Tiger Lawyer. It was in an image book, and I don't remember which image book it was. Or boom. It might have been Superbia or possibly Shudder. Tiger Lawyer. Yeah, Tiger Lawyer. The the, the tiger has, like, objection, and he, like, roars. Well, I like it. I I like it on principle right now. Yeah, it was cute. It was very cute. But I... I don't know if it ever came out as a collected issue. I know that there were backup strips. I cannot remember the book for the lightning. But he's not uh, a well-known writer, even though from the strength of this, he should be. Now that it's in print from a big publisher, and the fact that Monkey Brain brought this to light, you know, that's good for them. Monkey Brain is on 
fire. fire. Yeah. I mean, they do Bandette too, right? Yes. So there's Bandette. There's this. There's Rex. Edison Rex. Rex. Yes. They're really good. There's the double life of Miranda Turner, which, yeah. I mean, the, really the only problem with them is that because they're digital comics, they don't do it. It's so slow. Bandette, oh. I think there's like seven chapters in three years now. I think so. It's the double life of Miranda Turner. Yeah, we could watch recently, yeah. but there are only like five issues. Yeah, there's the Crystal's titles, Atomic Party Girls, Subatomic Party Girls. I haven't read that. Oh. I really should, though, because Kristen's has a very unique way of seeing the universe. <laughs> uh, you've got to give him that. Yes. So, Dave, I did not read the rest of the miniseries, despite buying it immediately, because I wanted to yeah. just maintain the impression of the first issue. issue for the review. But you better believe yeah. that as soon as we're done with this podcast, I am running home and reading this miniseries. I, I it was fantastic. Yeah, I think I'm going with the print. They want it to be in print, and I think it deserves the print treatment, so... I'm going to buy the print. Oh, look. If IDW is probably going to put this out as a trade. Trade, yeah. I'm getting that, Yeah, too. yeah. A nice oh, yeah. IDW hardcover. And I really want to see the next projects these guys do because, well, they finished with this one. It's yeah. already existing. It's been over for a while. So, My understanding is that this came out last year. In digital. Yeah, in 2014. Yeah. So, so. I, hey. I, we should check these out. We should check what these guys do right now. We should. I'm going to... Like, our next previews, I will be looking for that name. Okay. And that's the issues. Shall we do the trade review? And now Birthright. That's the first volume. Well, okay, so this is an arc review. This isn't a trade. The trade will be coming. Very soon. But this is the first five issues of Birthright. It's an image comic by... I'm going by Joshua Williamson, who writes, and Andre Bresson, who draws. Yeah. And I just want to put this out there. I wasn't going to mention it, but I am going to say it. This was supposed to be a review of the first six issues of Spread by Justin Jordan, also by Image. And issue number six, which concludes the first arc, was supposed to come out yesterday. It's been delayed to March 11th. That's a month after its original release date in the solicitations. So, for those of you who are considering signing up to Image Direct, buyer beware. Okay. The big plot of this thing, the big hook, is that what would happen if some kid went to Narnia Let's start with okay. Narnia. No, 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 that's, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is what Williamson said at the letter pages of the first issue, right? I did not read the letter pages. Because ah. I had something to say. Uh, okay. okay. And, you know, became this great warrior, king, chieftain, great hero, whatever, and then came back. But unlike Narnia novels, he came back in the body of the adult warrior king. To parents and a sibling who's been missing him for a year... And we're sure that he was dying or kidnapped or whatever horrible thing happened to him. And it's about the meeting between the fantastic and the mundane and what the fantastic brings to this world. That's the high concept. Okay, so let's get this out right away. It's another Image fantasy comic. Now, I'm not saying that Image can only have one post-apocalyptic comic or one fantasy comic or one science fiction comic, but inevitably you do get a hierarchy. Especially given the costs of comics these days, right? Okay. So, you can read Rat Queens and The Autumn Lands and Umbral, because they're all fantasy comics, but they're all very different fantasy comics. What happens if you are a kid who goes up to Narnia, has this adventure, and comes home? Joshua Williamson writes in the letter pages of the first issue, that was what drove him to write this story, right? Yes. You have this kid, he goes to Narnia, he comes back, and how do you go back to living a normal life afterwards? That's not the actual plot. That's not this book. It could have if been you're looking book. for that book, it's Oni Presses The Return of King Doug by Greg Erb, Jason Ormland, and oh, Jim Clark. Oh, I've not read this. 
Is it any good? It's quite good. That's a scenario where the kid goes to the fantasy world, runs home, leaves for 20 years, comes back as an adult. That's the story that Williamson says he's writing. What we have here is what happens when the quote-unquote hero of destiny, right, the chosen one, switches sides. That's the, That's the big plot twist of the first issue. Not, he says... It's he, not the first... Is it no, the first, no, issue? The, the first issue. Right. The, the first he says, I came back to this world in order to save it from the evil wizards of what have you. God, the evil god king lore. Yeah, who invaded from the realm of the evil god king lore here. But it turns out, twist, that yeah. actually, no, he failed his mission and he's now servant of lore. Exactly. As far as we it's know. Michael's storyline, Michael being the protect. Well... well this is my yeah. issue with the book, but we'll get to that. Okay. Michael being the kid who went off to the land of Terranos. Yeah, the kid who would be king. Came back as Conan, basically. His story has nothing to do with reassimilating into the mundane world. It's not about reuniting with his family. It's not about living a normal life. He has a mission. Yes. Now, yes. overall, I liked it. You have parallel narratives. You have Michael's disappearance and what happens to his family at home. And his father is accused of murdering It's basically family. Gone Girl with a kid instead of the wife. And without the premeditated plan, I suppose. Well, we don't know. Michael doesn't intentionally run away. Yeah, well, this book has a lot of twists in it, so God yeah. knows what will happen in the following arcs. And like, his past adventures in Terranos and everything that happened to him are unfolding for the reader at the same time as he's back home as an adult, and there's this great scene where his parents and his older brother, who is now his younger brother, brother are looking at him, and the mother isn't sure, and the brother isn't sure, but the father looks at him and he's like, that's our son. And the reason it's him specifically, like, the reason he's so convinced is because he was accused of murdering his son. He's the only one who actually knows what happened. So, immediately, he buys it, like, right at the top, takes the kid, go, you know, does everything that Michael asks him to do. So I enjoyed all of that. And again, like, I like talking of, like, innovative twists, right? The idea that the chosen one has betrayed basically the cause, has and we joined the evil. And people. we haven't reached that part of his memory, so we don't know how it we happened, don't know how why it happened, and what led to it. Mm -hmm. So, and is it in the first issue? Yeah, that's the end of the first when issue. When he, he's sitting in the interrogation room, and his fingerprints match Michael, and then of course all hell breaks loose. But here's the problem that I had with it: I didn't have a sense of who the protagonist is. It's not Michael because of the role he's playing in the story. He may be the protagonist of the flashback sequences in which we see him as a child in this mystical realm getting oriented and, and you know, being prepared to be the hero, but he's not the hero of the present-day storylines. He's, If anything, he's the antagonist, right? He's the one who is furthering Lore's yeah, but, plans to invade But nobody the knows it but him in the real right. world. But that doesn't make him the protagonist. At first, I thought it might be the father, because the father immediately like runs home, grabs the food, grabs the supplies, grabs his children, and, like, takes off. But the father is taken out halfway through the story. He's not taken out yeah. permanently, but he, we're, we're not seeing things through his eyes There anymore. isn't a folk library. Right. Well, then I thought it was the brother, because what happens at the end of the storyline is the brother is empowered by chance. Like, yeah. it's a random thing, but he gains the ability to understand that there's something else going on Well, here. to see, but he doesn't understand he can see what's going on with his older brother, but he can't understand why it's important that what he sees. Right, yet. Yes. Doesn't the... No, no, no. No, the... okay. I, I, think, I think the idea is that he's... Well, I know that there's something problematic, but I don't understand why it's right. problematic. So it looks like he's the protagonist, yes. Brennan. 
but then the end of he the, hasn't been front and center until the last issue. And the end of the fifth issue brings us uh, another character from the yes. fantasy universe, which appears to be the major headliner for the next arc. Now, I'm okay with it not being a single focalizer, being a theme or a team book, what have you, instead of a single book. My biggest problem is this. It's a fantasy universe that I've seen too many times, and I understand that it's supposed to be a play on that, I understand it's you know it's aware that he's in a generic fantasy universe, but right because you I'm, have those children's drawings. Yeah, yeah, but I'm out. tired of generic fantasy universe. Red Queen's got away with it because of wit and charm and sense of humor, but why fantasy in comic book is still stuck in the post-Tolkien Dragonlance, what have you, dungeons and monsters? Why don't we have interesting, fantastic fantasies in comic books? Other than, I don't know, whenever Brandon Graham bothers to do something. Because he's actually trying to be unique and different is in his design. Is it fantasy, though? It is. I mean, I've been no. reading Prophet lately. And no, not Prophet. The you know, structure could yes. be seen as fantasy, but the setting oh. is science well, fiction it's fa- the yeah, core. Well, it's fantastic. That's what, fantasy in comics right now mm-hmm. is not fantastic. It's rigid. It's expected. You're talking about the setting, though. You're talking about like the prototypical medieval yeah, swords and, and sorcery I'm, I'm, setting. And, and like Cluster, with its generic sci-fi setting, I'm bored now. And if you want to do this setting, do it right. And you can't just say, well, it's just in the background because about 30% of the story takes place in the fantasy universe. At least 30%, if not more. Right. I, I see what you're saying, but I think that the excuse that we give to Rat Queens, which is a valid excuse, yeah. like, you know, it's a, it, yes. It is a typical D&D setting, but the humor and the likability of the main characters compensate for that. Yes. And you can keep reading without being like graded by the typicality of it all because of Betty and V and Hannah and Violet and Braga. I feel like here we can apply the same principle of an excuse because what interested me here and like what I want to keep reading to find out is why he betrayed the cause. This would be like what would happen if in Narnia the kids ended up siding against the lion in the first book. And they chose to side with the evil queen or, or whatever. Whatever, yes. Whoever she was. Or like if in Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam walk up to Mount Doom, knock on the door and like, hey, here's your ring. That's a scenario that doesn't happen very often in fantasy because of the whole cliche, simplistic good versus evil binary. Yes. You don't have a lot of medieval fantasy with like shades of gray. Really, like, what would keep me reading here, and I'm not saying that I was crazy about this in the way that I was with Dave. I'm willing to give this another arc, Mm -hmm. just to see how it goes. What interests me is I want to know why Michael is siding with this God King, right? I want to know why the narrative of the Chosen One selected by prophecy to embrace his destiny and become a hero... And, I mean, he actually says this when he's being interrogated. He says, yes, I married this princess, and I had this friend, and I was trained. And there's an image of him, I think even in the first issue, like he's standing with his sword up and, like, a woman. It's a very John Carter image. The fantasy hero triumphant. That's not what happened. No. The truth of it is withheld from us for now. Like, that's one of the short-term mysteries that Williamson is building on. I want to know why. Will his brother accept it and... That last page reveal on issue five also had a bit of a twist because initially what they say in terms of how to explain this movement between worlds is that only people of a specific bloodline, Michael's bloodline in this case, can move from Terranos to Earth and back. And then in the end, you find out that one of the characters has bent the rule in a very clever way. Yeah. 
Uh, and it is a clever twist. It's like, you know, you find a way around that little restriction. And that was the sort of thing that took me back to Rat Queen's, like, The Siege of Palisade. When it's the troll girlfriend who shows up, leading the army, and she's like, you cunts killed my boyfriend. And their response is, we killed lots of boyfriends, you know, how do you know we killed yours? That, that's like, whenever anybody asks me to summarize what is Rat Queen's, I just show them that page. That's the innovation. Uh, for me, Birthright doesn't do it as well. Yeah, for me, the interesting part was the meeting between the fantastic and the mundane, but it doesn't happen because once he comes back to the real world, it, we discover that, no, we actually have a lot of fantasy stuff in our world. And he's used to stuff, you know, in a flash. Like, well, I remember how this works, I remember how this works, I, re- I know what a car is. There isn't anything strange to him. That's the gap between the story Williamson says he wants to tell and what he's actually telling, yeah. because the way that the story is unfolding, Michael has no interest in reassimilating. Like, he spends, I think, maybe two panels with his mother. The only reason he goes off with his father is because his father believes him. His mother, is like, like, he doesn't say anything to her, he just takes off. So this isn't about coming home at all. And then it sort of subverts what Williamson is saying that he wants to do, because our interest is more in why are you a traitor and not, you don't know what iPads are? There's none of that, right? Well, he should know because that's the problem with the world hasn't changed, you know, because in the real world, only a year passed. Right. Only he changed. So there isn't any culture shock. It's not like, uh, what was that movie? Jumanji? Yes. Where the, one of the protagonists was gone for 30 years and or so. And he came back and he found out what a day was. <laughs> um, I mean, to be completely honest, the story that Williamson is telling is more interesting than... How do you come back from that? Okay. Because you remember Neil Gaiman did a short story called, was it The Story of Susan? I, I did not read this, so I do not remember He it. has a short story in a collection, either Smoke and Mirrors or Fragile Things, where he basically talks about what happens to Susan, who was the oldest girl in Narnia, and she's the one who sort of steps back from the fantasy at some point. Yes. And he tells the rest of her life story, like what happened to her going it's a fantastic read, but I feel like it's something that really applies best to canonical works of fantasy. I would love to read a novel telling me what happens with Sam after Lord of the Rings. But for an original story, like you don't have that anchor. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the art. The art is... I liked it. It's well-crafted, but it's not exceptional. It's not, no. There isn't anything there that made me say, whoa, there isn't any double page spread that's like, oh my god, or any amazing, you know, storytelling bits. It's fitting to the story, but that's a bit of a problem because, like I said, the story feels a bit generic at times. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the art doesn't help. Rook, for example, right, the person who trains Michael. He's a blue-skinned guy with big, big muscles. Yeah, big muscle. guy with an X. You know? Okay. And flying people and, you know, and regular... Michael's design himself, right? The long black hair, the beard, the metallic gauntlet. It's like, it's serviceable. Sui generic. You never have that moment where you stare at the panel and it's like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. There was one bit, the final fight scene at issue 5 where the one wizard is turning away from him and suddenly a panel after that he's right in front of that wizard securing... Yeah. In, in the middle is like, how did you do that? Did you flash there? Did like you, you? We missed you the teleport- panel that shows yeah. the jump. Yeah, did you teleport in front of him suddenly? That's the climactic fight scene. The yeah. fights aren't this story's strong. No, no. The character bits are, and the mystery is, you know, the twists. Yeah. 
I wish I had a stronger sense of Brennan, the older slash younger brother, because he's clearly the person through which we're meant to sympathize the most. Uh, Williamson did Sheltered. It's not the same style. Well, no, but they are similar stories. Like Sheltered is also about an isolated community of kids yeah. in a... Well, well what not, they think is an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic world. They're acting as if it's a post-apocalyptic world. And again, Sheltered was something that I was supposed to like, and I find myself not hating, but just... I'm not interested enough to invest in this. Well, I wasn't interested in Sheltered either, but the reason for that was because once you get past the initial twist, what happens in Sheltered, the premise of the series, is a survivalist group with kids... And the parents have been drilling their kids about, like, you know, be prepared, the be prepared, time, be prepared, the, the end times, government are coming back. And the kids one day just snap, kill their parents, and take over the complex, because what else are you going to do in a survivalist environment? And what Williamson was doing in that series was, look at how they take the survivalist mantra to its logical conclusion. But when you're reading it, you're like, well, then who am I supposed to be rooting for here? Not the kids, and not the parents, because, you know, they're survivalists too. So it's like, well, that's all of you die. Yeah, that's really it. But I did enjoy this book much more than I was expecting to. Again, like I'm not willing to commit to it entirely because it depends greatly on what Williamson does next. Like I need a stronger sense of specific characters. Who is versus who here, right? Like we know that Laura is evil unless it turns out by the twist that he isn't, which you never know. It could go there too. The next arc, I'll be there and then I'll decide. But... Overall, I liked it. Okay, these were the reviews. and That was this episode of The Smorgasbord. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, like Sean said at the beginning of the episode, go to Seaport and donate to their Patreon. Give us money. We like the monies, the yes, greens. Till next time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Bon appetit.